Hello there, and welcome back to my weekly show. I'm Father Roderick, and it is a warm day here in the Netherlands. 31 degrees Celsius. That's in the 90s, right? Fahrenheit. And uh, tomorrow it's going to be even hotter. But here in the house, it is relatively cool, so I'm just going to pretend that it's not warm. <laughs> I hope it's, uh, it's okay where you live, uh, both weather-wise, but also corona-wise, of course. Uh, it is still a very difficult situation in many countries in the world. Here in the, in the Netherlands and in most of Europe, we seem to have the corona situation under control, uh, which I'm very happy with. Uh, today, it's Wednesday when I'm recording this. Our Prime Minister will probably announce even more relaxation of the, of the strict rules, which will be, I think, very helpful for, uh, for my work because I'm about to start filming my TV show. And in order to do that, I need to be able to travel and uh, maybe also have other people accompany me. So all that was not allowed in, uh, in the recent past. We had to have, uh, even, even if I wanted to go film, I had to, tr and, and I needed, for instance, a cameraman and uh, a, an audio person. Uh, all those people would have to travel with, uh, in, with separate, um, separate cars. Uh, now, normally when you're working on an expensive production, that's not much of a problem because you can always uh, get those costs back. But in my case, I would have to pay for all those you know, extra miles, extra kilometers. So um, I'm very happy that that is also a rule that they're going to um, loosen or going to just uh, take away. So anyway, uh, it is uh, a nice warm day here. I'm recording this, as usual, for those of you that are watching me live, in Animal Crossing uh, New Horizons in my little virtual podcasting studio. And in the virtual world, it is actually raining. So, yeah, it's a bit of a mind warp. It's almost like podcasting from, from The Matrix, uh, but then a very cute version of The Matrix. <laughs> you know what's going on? This is what's happening in your world. They said Catholics rule. We got Boston, South America, the good part of Ireland, and we're making serious inroads in Mozambique, baby. You've taken your first step into a larger world. So it's been a bit of a special week. We're moving our office uh, uh, stuff. Um, I've, I've been working for about uh, two years now from an office in the center of the city. Uh, it's a building next to a church. However, the church is going to be closed. Um, so the... Uh, the consequence of that is that we need to uh, get out of the building next to the church. Um, we've decided to um, to not get another office, and I think that is a wise decision because uh, we've we only have two people working for Tridio right now. Uh, so it's Inge, uh, the longtime producer, also worked with me in the early. Uh, days of, of podcasting. Uh, but last year we had two other people working, so it was kind of made, made sense to, to have an office. Uh, but now we can save a lot of costs by just not having uh, to pay uh, rent, which was quite expensive. It was like 900 euros, I think, per, per month. So that really adds up over, over time. Uh, so what we're going to do is I'm going to create a a workspace here on the ground level of the of the rectory where I live. I 
have a pretty big house right now and I don't know what to do with all the spaces. So I'm going to move my living room upstairs and then down here is where I will record my both my video and my audio shows. Um, and then I'll have a, a the sunroom. I'll use that for meetings and uh, in case uh, Inga needs to work here or we need to work together with other people, they can do that here in this uh, in this room. The, the downside is we had to move all our equipment, all our office stuff today um, to get it, uh, well, to prepare everything for the movers because we're not going to move ourselves again. Um, to move that uh, to, um, to, to the to town where I live. Uh, and it's always funny that once you start moving, you realize how much stuff you have. So there were uh, bookshelves and uh, still... I thought only a few books left, because I've gotten rid of about 80%, I would say, of my book collection um, two years ago when I moved here to this village. And most of my books are now on my Kindle, so I didn't really... I only kept the books, theology books and books concerning um, spirituality, stuff that you can't get digitally because, well, most of those books are out of print and there's not enough market for it uh, for to, to have digital copies of that. So um, I thought that we didn't have m many books left there in the office. Unfortunately, it was still five five boxes or something like that. Anyway, um, we, uh, we, we've been working for two or three days now um, to get everything ready. And then here, um, where I live in my rectory, we still need to figure out a way to store all the, all the equipment. And I don't have much um, in terms of, uh, of, of shelves or um, storage space. Even though the, the rooms are very big, there are no cupboards anywhere. So maybe we'll have to temporarily store uh, some stuff in the attic and maybe even get rid of some of the equipment that we don't need anymore. Anyway, it's uh, probably the best thing we can do n right now because it's too hot to, to, to go filming. Um, I'll just wait for the weather to cool down again. Um, but I did make a decision as to how I'm going to film my TV show. And it's going to be, I think, very interesting. I'm going to get a, a bike, a touring bike, and I will travel the country, literally, I'll go to all the, the, the far reaches of the country and take all my equipment with me um, on a bike. So <laughs> I don't know what I'm getting myself into, but I've got the feeling that this could be an interesting way to produce a show. And traveling by bike itself will probably also uh, create interesting story material um, because I'm, some, something tells me that it's not always going to be smooth sailing. Um, anyway, we'll see. So that's what's uh, happening right here. I hope that by next week we'll, we'll be able to uh, leave the office uh, that we we're currently occupying, hand in the keys, and then we'll probably still need a few weeks to, um, to put everything in place right here. Um, but right now, this is where I've been working from for the past, what is it, three months now during Corona time. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, I'm actually still very productive and uh yeah if it weren't for sometimes a little bit too much work i i think i'm i'm totally fine here uh even even the youtube production is is going well i can record my my reaction videos here in the living room and actually makes for a nice decor so yeah i'm i'm quite happy with the situation all right it is time to move over to the movie 
uh, room here in my uh, virtual house because it is time to talk about a movie that I was looking forward to because I read the book on which they based the movie and it premiered on Disney Plus instead of premiering in the movie theater. However, my experience wasn't as positive as I hoped it would be. So, oh well, what are you going to do? I'll tell you why. How do you not like movies? They're predictable. Like, the guy gets the girl and that kid sees dead people and Darth Vader is Luke's father. Not liking movies is like not liking puppies. They're fine. I just get bored and never make it to the end. You know, you need a movie education. You need a movication. I'm going to give it to you. So I'm sitting here in uh, the decor of what I think, I hope, is going to be my um, uh, uh, kind of a, like a drive-in movie theater. So um, uh, it's it's like a parking lot. It looks like a parking lot. Right now I'm sitting on a, on a red couch watching uh, a flat screen TV. But someone is going to send me a car that I can place here and I can sit in the car. And, or, yeah, I think I... Maybe it's a bed. I th- I don't know. Anyway, and then uh, just going to create a little drive-in theater experience. Uh, so while the TV is playing in the background, I want to talk about the movie Artemis Fowl. And you heard me talk about the the movie, and I think I even played the trailer. I can't remember if I did. Um, and I told you that I was reading the the books I picked them up right before the movie premiered on um, on Amazon uh, on the in the Kindle store uh, they were on sale for just ninety nine cents so I got the entire series and it was great I've been reading the first book and I loved it so much it is well it is really for kids um, but it was still very enjoyable I think the I understand why. Uh, the the books were so successful. I think they were written around the year two thousand. Sometimes a little bit of the story uh, betrays that. So they they talk about the internet as if it's something really modern and very you know exciting that he's using the internet to find clues about you know things that he needs to decipher. Uh, so you're like, um, okay, yeah, well, I guess for kids nowadays they can't even imagine a time that that uh, you know before the internet. This is, by the way, the sound of the trailer. We want to know everything about the man you work for. The man. Oh, oh, no. This isn't about the father. This is about the son. So the original story, the book, tells the story about this boy, Artemis Fowl, 12 years old, who is a criminal mastermind. He stems from a very rich uh, family that uh, every generation has uh, uh, gathered more fortune by basically stealing it and not even from the rich they're just criminal people and uh, then at one point they lose everything and the circumstances under which they lose their family fortune are different from the movie and then this young boy is the only one who's left I think his father dies at one point and his mother uh, goes mad and so he still has to take care of his mother but um, you know one day she remembers who he is and then a few minutes later she she doesn't know him anymore um, very complicated family situation and this 12 year old boy needs to f- figure out a way to kind of reclaim 
the fortune of his family. And he does that by doing the unthinkable, and that is by kidnapping a, a fairy. And fairy, in the world of Artemis Fowl, it stands for basically any fairy tale character. So it's not just a, you know, a fairy like a Tinkerbell, for instance, but also dwarves and gnomes and whatnot. So anyway, he kidnaps this uh, this elf uh, or this fairy, and then the fairies, of course, who live underground. There is this big secondary world uh, deep below the the crust of the earth, where these fairies live. They want to liberate their uh, their secret agent or whatever it is. I think no, the fairy is actually a kind of more of a police officer slash detective, and so they want to liberate her. Obviously, and then Artemis tries to prevent that. Later on in the story, they'll end up, you know, teaming up. But anyway, in this this first book, um, they're still um, enemies. And what is great about the book is that uh, it, it's a very nice balance that they find between, you know, the boy actually being a criminal mastermind. Uh, and he's not really moral or anything, but it is presented in a very sympathetic way and still root for him because, well, he's just smart. And it's kind of a, an unexpected hero for, for a children's book or kind of young adult stuff. Um, and that makes him interesting. It's kind of not the norm. Uh, so what the movie did was to uh, present us with a v- different version of the story where... The, the father is still very much there and he gets ab- the father gets abducted by uh, some kind of evil fairy that is not in the book at all. And then it, it, it turns into this convoluted story where Artemis Fowl has to find an artifact, as device that is somehow threatening the world and that actually shows that Artemis is not really a criminal mastermind. He's in fact a very moral, you know, savior archetype um, who just happens to use unconventional methods to reach his goal. And then he is to somehow free his father from the clutches of an, a, a mysterious kind of hooded person where during the entire movie you think we're going to get the reveal who that is and maybe someone that we know. But no, no, it's just this anonymous enemy. That's not the only thing that's wrong with this movie, but let me first play a little bit more of the trailer. Artemis Fowl. You've grown strong, son. So in the trailer and also in the movie, Artemis Fowl is presented as this very sportsman-like kid. Uh, he's, He's shown surfing and fighting and martial arts expert totally different from the books. In the books, he is just this kid who is uh, very pale, always sits in front of computers and reading books and uh, actually very unpopular with other kids because he is not the sport, the sportsman type. And so, again, an, another way in which the movie radically departs from the character that the fans of the book series know and love. Smarter than I ever imagined. Then take me with you. All I have now, Artie. There's just one very important thing I have to do. Authorities launched a worldwide manhunt for the famous collector. He is suspected to have been behind some of the biggest robberies ever. Dad! So in the movie, Artemis Fowl discovers all of a sudden that his father is actually wanted and is considered to be a criminal. He himself did not know that. 
again, so different from the book, where, you know, the charm of this character is that, yes, he's 12 years old, but he's already just like his father and grandfather and the whole family be before him. Uh, just a, another criminal uh, who is just very smart. And um, in, in the movie, the boy is, uh, is played by young actor, but unfortunately not directed very well. This is just one of those victims of very, very bad directing. Um, everything is wooden. Everything is stiff. His dialogue is, is uh, terrible. And he is so unsympathetic. You never root for him. He, has n he shows no emotion. And even the relationship with his father is uh, without any depth. The father goes away at the start of the movie and only returns at the very end. Um, but you have no emotional connection. You, you see no, no real connection between the father and his boy. So it makes the whole quest to find his father kind of... Eh, um, I don't know. Not, just not very, there's not much at stake. You don't feel the emotion, or, nor of the re reunion. So, um, it, it, they, they, it's almost as if Disney thought, well, we can't really make a movie about a boy who's a criminal mastermind because, well, we're Disney and children have to be moral and have to be an example to other kids, thereby taking away what makes this series stand apart from all the other books for children and, and teenagers. It, it's, the, it's the essence of the story. It's even in the... In the, in the subtitle that this is Artemis Fowl is a criminal mastermind. You take away the criminal, you take away the entire reason for this, for this story to exist. Hello? Your family has taken something of great value from us. Return it to me or I will destroy everything you love. Well, that, of course, is the MacGuffin. There is this device, and uh, it's kind of unclear, and it doesn't really matter that much. It's this kind of strange CGI object, and oh, whatever. You weren't supposed to see this yet. Uh, this is where the trailer introduces us to the second very important character from the books that they completely butcher and, and turn into a completely uninteresting character. So in the books, this butler is um, the lifeguard, the, the, the personal protector of Artemis Fowl. He is a butler, but he's also incredibly powerful and very strong and very dark. It's a very dark character. Here in the movie, they completely toned it down, made him into this, yes, he's a kind of a strong guy, but so boring, so bland. They're... Uh, don't get me started. I mean, the fans of the books must be so disappointed. And again, they turn him into an uninteresting character so that the moment that there is a threat, that, that he is in danger, you don't really care that much because, well, you know, why is he even there? Artemis Fowl in the, in the movie doesn't really need him. Your father is in a complicated profession. For years, he has protected powerful secrets that have kept mankind safe from the dangers of another world. It's time to face your destiny. Now, this is where you already in the trailer see the main issue that I have with this movie. Artemis Fowl is full of exposition. It is tell 
don't show. Even the storytelling device that they use for uh, the, the most of the first half of the movie is pure exposition in the worst form. So the trailer started with this dwarf, right? This this guy is like very dirty looking, big beard, hair. It's like a mini version of Hagrid. And uh, who is taken captive and who has to tell the story of Artemis Fowl. Let me tell you the story of Artemis Fowl. Artemis Fowl was this 12-year-old boy who lived in a mansion in Ireland and his father was a criminal master. It just goes on and on and on. Instead of just telling the story the way it was written in the book, which is very gripping. Like the first chapter of the book, you're in China and this kid is traveling the world and then he comes across this 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 text in runes, in, in fairy runes, and he tries to decipher it with a computer and and then he discovers that, that whoa, wait a minute, there are real, fairies are real and what if I, and, and they, they possess a lot of gold, what if I kidnap one of those fairies and ask for gold, then I can restore the fortune of my family, etc. I mean, it, it, in the book, it is told in such a way that you really want to know if he's going to succeed. Like heist movies. You know, what is the charm of heist movies? Like, oh, there's this plan and there's this this group of people like Ocean's Eleven or whatever. And they have a plan. And against all odds, they're going to break the bank. That is what makes this the book so so interesting and you want to you, you don't necessarily root for the morals of the character but you root for the for the for the thief to get his prize in the movie they completely take that away and instead have this boring dwarf and for some reason he's filmed in black and white very gritty and but the character himself is not menacing at all he's kind of a goofy not very well written not i mean i i guess they wanted to present him as comic relief and it doesn't work at all like they're all the jokes fall flat and and he is just constantly narrating he's this voiceover this boring voiceover that just drones on and on and on about artemis fowl and 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 tells you what you actually see not that there is much to see because most of the movie literally two-thirds is just random action of the worst kind oh, let's just do a fight with uh, 10,000 fairies um, that are floating around, clearly CGI, inside a time-stopping bubble. Uh, that and, and everything takes place in Ireland around the mansion where Artemis lives. And uh, the, the other stuff that they do constantly is the, the big Star Trek movie mistake where they think that we're going to be wowed by what we see, and we like to stare at this wonderful fairy world for minutes and minutes and minutes. So there's this, this reveal of the underground fairy cave or whatever, and it's so clearly, it's just one of those run-of-the-mill CGI worlds that we've seen so many times and so much better in, in Marvel movies, and they just float around and it's oh isn't this wonderful isn't this wonderful no it's not it doesn't serve the story it's boring it's backdrop i don't want to look at a backdrop just give me something that happens well unfortunately nothing happens and it's just cgi images with a voiceover of a dwarf boring uh, let me see what else is happening uh, so his father is uh constantly in a dungeon and he's not doing anything, basically. He's just a total victim. 
He has no role whatsoever in the entire story. This is what they call greatness. But we are not alone in this. Mulch Diggums. Just a talented giant dwarf. And I'm Holly Short, your ally on the other side. So Holly is this 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 fairy, uh, this elf um, that he kidnaps. It. I mean, that does happen in the movie, but it's much less interesting. It's uh, have very soon she's just basically his ally, and uh, it take, totally takes away the tension. What makes the story of the of the 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 fairy in the book so interesting is that uh, this is a girl who is trying to show that girls can be cops too. So it's if she fails, then this whole emancipation of the of the female fairies will fail. And so, it, you know, there's this backstory that I thought was very kind of new and, and very modern for a book that was written around the year 2000, way ahead of its time. They completely removed that entire plot. Instead, she is uh, the only dynamic that she that the the, the the Disney gives her character is this tense relationship with her uh, her boss, uh, played by the great Judy Dench. I mean, Oscar-winning actress who is now a female version of the police boss in this in the book. And in the book, it makes sense that it is a man because it's this whole opposition of, you know, girls can't be cops, they can't be successful. And now they do Judy Dench, and she is already at the top of the of the food chain in the fairy world. So there is no reason for the female fairies to prove themselves because their boss is already successful and female. It's real. All right, save my father, save the world. Whole team ready, tell him we are dead. Scared, Artemis? I prefer scared to dead. That sounded very convincing. Not, I'm scared to death. No, this kid has no emotions in the movie. And again, it's probably not the actor's fault. It is just the way he's directed and the terrible lines. And then we get Judy Dench, who for some reason constantly talks in a sort of growl. Like all the elves. Coming. You think you can beat us? We'll see. Who do you think you are? I'm the next criminal mastermind. You'd expect there to be something mastermindy about the story, right? Where he comes up with you know, a great idea or something that no one saw coming and that shows what a genius it is. The only thing that this kid does is picking up a gun from a fairy and pointing it at other fairies and shooting them. And that's kind of the extent of his genius. It is not made clear whatsoever in whatever form that, that this boy is smart. Actually, he comes across as pretty dumb and emotionally completely handicapped. Now look around, this is what they call greatness. I didn't read much on trolls. Anything I should look out for? The teeth. They eat people. Good to know. Again, the trader, I think, is trying to take to make it look as if this is uh, a, a, a funny movie and that there's a lot going on between the characters. None of that. This is just random quotes. It is nothing, uh, nothing, nothing is interesting. Even this fight that takes place at the mansion, which is 
They're one of the most boring places on the planet. I mean, Ireland is beautiful, but they don't show Ireland in its beauty. It's just this cliff kind of the house. It's very generic. There's really nothing, nothing Irish about the entire place. Uh. Okay, well, so that was that was the trailer. Uh, now that I've seen the movie and I've read the books, I realize how little the trailer um, corresponded to the actual final result. The, the, the trailer was like, okay, well, we'll just wait and see. It, it kind of looks okay. Maybe this is popcorn uh, entertainment. It's not. It is just one of the worst movie versions of a book that I've ever seen. That's saying a lot. And this is, this is Disney in the year 2020. We know what makes for a good story. They've shown with, with The Mandalorian that they know how to tell good stories and to turn something that was kind of damaged property like the Star Wars. The way they were managing Star Wars was not very popular with some Star Wars fans, but with The Mandalorian. And I've, I've just recently watched the entire... Um, the entire, uh, what is it, uh, documentary series about the Mandalorian, it kind of showed that, that whoa, they, they know how to tell stories. This is the Disney that we need. This is the Star Wars that we want. Why didn't they apply that to a new franchise that they clearly wanted to be a success um, and, and, and put some storytelling talent on, on Artemis Fowl. How can you mess up a book series that works so well and has so many dedicated fans and completely make a travesty of the movie? It is all action, the final part of like one-third of the movie. It's all about this very generic fight of the fairies versus the few people uh, there. And uh, the ending is so unsatisfying and so boring and so bland and so not emotional and a huge failure a huge failure and it just boggles the mind that this that they have been able to mess this up it's just they should get a prize maybe the razzies get a prize for for the 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 worst failure in translating a good book uh in, in into yeah just a terrible movie Terrible movie. That is my review. Let's move over to the chapel. It is time for a visit to the Peculiar Bunch. <laughs> Catholics rock! Here at the Peculiar Bunch, we're always happy to tell you everything you always wanted to know about Catholics, but you are afraid to ask. Catholics can be a peculiar bunch. No meat on Friday. Meat? What do they eat? Light bulbs? And today I just want to talk about stuff that's going on in the Catholic Church right now. And it's a bit of a mixed bag. Man, you guys got more crazy rules than Blockbuster Video. Well, a mixed bag, I, I guess, in terms of topics, because uh, it's a little bit all over the place. So first of all, um, in, in many countries in the world, uh, churches are reopening. Here in my own uh, country, the churches have been opened to uh, small groups of faithful 
um, at the beginning of June. Unfortunately, in my parish, they, for some reason, did not think it was feasible to uh, open the churches for uh, for the faithful. So they decided to move it over to July the 1st. And from what it looks like, we can now, as long as people keep uh, a, a, a distance of about a meter and a half, um and communion is distributed uh, according to very strict protocols, uh, then basically we can s- resume uh, church life again. Uh, unfortunately, of course, it means that we can fit much less people in the church than than we have. Uh, we had parishioners. I, I say we had because we don't know if people are going to go back, if, if, if the elderly uh, already dare to go to church again. Um, and, and most of the people that go to church in the Netherlands are pretty old, or 70 plus, the majority. So it's a kind of wait and see if um, how how church life will 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 pick up itself. Um, and there's also another problem, another issue that I'm kind of struggling with in my own uh, this local parish. Uh, the bishops asked um, the local churches to open their churches and to distribute communion using a communion screen. So it's a transparent uh, PVC screen um, that is placed near the altar and uh, the faithful have to approach the screen. Behind the screen is the priest and uh, they have to extend their hands under the screen and the priest will drop the host in their hands using uh, tweezers, basically, liturgical tweezers. There's actually an existing liturgical object for that uh, that was also used in, in other times where you know, there was a risk of infection and still want, they still wanted to distribute communion. The thing is, uh, I have a, um, in, in, in my two, the two parishes where I'm uh, assisting, they've decided to do something different um, and to get these uh, coughing masks. So basically transparent helmets uh, that you see in hospitals where they're used, for instance, in intensive care. But then it's not just the helmet, of course. They also wear uh, the um, uh, mouth mask and other protective uh, clothing like gloves and everything. Here the parishes thought, well, what if we just do the helmets and then if the, the... the priest coughs, then, you know, the droplets at least will not infect the parishioners. I was not, from the start, I was not very comfortable with that solution. I thought the the communion screen was much safer uh, because there's a real separation between me and the parishioners that want to receive communion. Whereas now with the masks, they want the priests to go in the benches. So there is always a bench that is empty between the various parishioners. But then with the helmet, I have to distribute communion to the people in church. In some of our bigger churches, that is 100 people. But it means, in, in, you know, in, in, in the, the, the practical situation, that I step into this one-and-a-half-meter zone 100 times while distributing communion. And, and that just doesn't make me feel very comfortable. We're, we're not supposed to wear mouth masks. We're not uh, wearing any uh, protection other than that transparent mask over my face and i just i don't i don't think it's as safe as the communion screen so i voiced my opposition and unfortunately it was overruled they decided well we're just going with the uh, communion masks what makes it in my case extra difficult is that my father as you know is in a care uh, center um and uh, 
very vulnerable uh, in terms of his health, and so are the people around him. They've already had a number of infections, and people died of COVID-19. So uh, the rules now, and these are national rules, are that only two people can visit my father. And these have to be the same people, and these people have to be extra careful in not getting infected, not exposing themselves to... uh, to many other persons. So it, it made sense to my mom and I that I would be the second person next to my mom. My mom is living almost permanently in quarantine. She doesn't go out at all. She's extremely careful. Um, and so am I. I you know, I live here in the rectory alone. I don't have kids or any other family members that, uh, that could bring the infection to me. So um, I, I'm kind of the logical second person. And plus, they asked my father who is, because of uh, dementia, uh, quite confused. But my mom asked my father, who, who should be the second person? And she thought, we're just going to ask uh, his aunt, or actually his sister, my aunt, who lives in the same town as uh, the uh, where the care center is uh, located. But my dad said, uh, well, I'd like to see Roderick. So now I'm the second person who is visiting my father regularly. And of course... I don't want to be in a situation where maybe I get infected by distributing communion by stepping into that one and a half meter zone um, uh, multiple times in uh, during the weekend services, the masses that I celebrate. Um, because I would, I mean, even the the slightest chance that I could infect my father, and in my, in the case of my father, if my father get COVID nineteen, he he'd die. He has very bad lungs. He's extremely frail. Um, I don't want to play with the life of my father. I mean, I'm very much aware of my job as a priest, and I would absolutely love for people to receive communion, but not with this mask and stepping into the one-and-a-half-meter zone. So I've been having quite a few altercations with the parish people here and right now the situation is that they don't really want to offer an alternative they really think that well the priests have decided the other two priests have decided to wear that uh, that mask and that should be enough or the the helmet and that should be enough um and i don't agree so it's been a little bit of a tricky situation I guess the only solution is that in, in masses that I celebrate, uh, someone else is dis- distributing communion and goes into the benches. I don't want to risk it. But this is the very first time in my life as a priest that I had to choose between my parents and my work as a priest. And that has been a very difficult, and normally I don't like to get into conflicts like this, but I feel my, that my conscience asks me to choose for the safety of my father and, by the way, also my mother. If I would infect my father, my mom would also be infected. I only have two parents, right? And they're not replaceable. <laughs> I am not going to to take that risk. So I tried to explain that. I'm still waiting for the, uh, for the response. I'm a little bit sad that it had to come to this. If my parishes would have just followed the general, you know, national rules, then there wouldn't be a problem at all but now there is and it's really not my fault <laughs> but it's a tricky situation but i choose my parents and uh if that's if that's not good enough then well then i don't have a problem <laughs> but the parish has anyway so that's that's a kind of a, a, a personal an example of you know what what is obedience in this case 
Um, uh, of course, as a priest, I promised obedience to my bishop and to his successors. But obedience has its limits. It is uh, confined to the, to the morals, of course, of the church, to faith, to everything that is really essential to um, the Catholic faith. It does not mean blind obedience in the sense that if, the, if my bishop would call me up and say, I hereby command you to wash my car, I could tell my bishop, I didn't think so. You just wash it yourself. And I would not break any uh, ecclesial law. Obviously not. Um, in this case, it's uh, I think similar. Uh, this is not this is not a, um, a, a matter of um, uh, morals or or faith or theology or anything. So if the bishop agrees for this, you know, my parish to basically choose a different solution uh, than than the general protocols, then um, that is not the same as a commandment for me to do it that way. I think if I just say, well, I just want to follow the general protocols in the Netherlands, um, then that, I don't think I'm breaking any church law. And I'm not a uh, church, uh, how you call that, a law expert. So if anyone out there is uh, <laughs> more knowledgeable than I, I'm open to suggestions. But right now, I feel that actually my conscience, and that is a very important uh, uh, treasure, I think, in the Catholic Church, Um there is no higher authority than my personal conscience. Now, that conscience, of course, does not mean that I can just make up the rules myself. It has to be an informed conscience. So you need to listen to what the church teaches. You need to read about it and try to understand. But ultimately, I can never act against my conscience. And if I do, it would actually be sinful, <laughs> <laughs> to ignore your own conscience. Let's say you have a, a, a bishop who loses his mind and say, well, hey, I command all my priests to collaborate with the Nazis. I don't know what. Then priests have the obligation to listen to their conscience and to not obey their bishop in this case. Or what if a bishop is corrupt? And we've had so many examples of corrupt bishops or bishops that are not uh, having... A, if it goes against... The, what the church teaches, then there's actually an obligation to listen to your conscience before you listen to your bishop. So it's not a military type of, uh, of obedience in the church. In this case, I feel that when I try to protect my parents and my father especially, um, and thereby asking my parish to give me another option rather than this exception that they thought they could... They, well, they should implement with the with the helmets, the transparent helmets, and no other protection whatsoever. I think if I ask for um, the ability to just follow the general rules, which have been worked out in conjunction with the government, and thereby protecting my father, I am actually not only obedient to my conscience, but also to the commandment that I should respect my my parents, my father and my mother. Um, and, well, anyway, that's how I look at it. Maybe I'm wrong, but uh, I hope that uh, they can accommodate me. And if not, well, I'm not just going to change my mind because there is pressure that all priests should do the same. And no, no, no. To me, that is just not important enough, not as important as the health of my, of my parents. 
Anyway, in other news, uh, last week we celebrated the Feast of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. And that is a, a, a very peculiar feast in the Catholic Church, which um, if you are a little bit familiar with the Catholic imagery and you've ever been to a church, you may have seen these statues of Jesus, uh, usually in a red robe, a uh, white alb, pointing at his heart. And it's a heart on the outside of his body. And it usually has a thorn of a crown of thorns around it and a flame on top of it and sometimes some, you know, flames that are surrounding or like a corona of, uh, maybe that's the wrong word, a crown of, uh, of light surrounding it. And Jesus pointing at that heart. It, it, it used to be very popular devotion about a century ago and many families, many Catholic families would have a Sacred Heart statue um, in their homes as a reminder of the love of Jesus for them. Um, especially the, uh, the uh, um, uh, Jesuits have been spreading this, uh, this devotion as far as I've uh, read. Now, it... It's the kind of image that doesn't work the, that well anymore for our modern sensibilities. I always thought that those um, those statues of the Sacred Heart of Jesus were a little bit too sweet for my taste, um, and so I've always kind of disregarded this feast as uh, it's just this, this kind of cheesy, uh, a little bit outdated uh, um, uh, tradition, and maybe it's time to you know replace it with something else. Well. Uh, I don't think I was right by thinking that and by discarding it just based on the imagery. Because ultimately, the feast itself is, I think, um, uh, very central to, I think, uh, the, one of the core messages of, of the Catholic faith, and that is that God is love and that Christ is the embodiment of that love. So if you want to understand who God is, you have to look at what Jesus does. And everything that Jesus does is filled with with his with his heart, um, the heart, of course, it's not the physical heart, um, but it is the symbol of our feelings, our are uh, the the kind of the seed of our soul, and uh, it it is what we associate with love, and and it actually the symbol itself is not that weird if you consider that without the heart we die. The heart is what pumps the blood around and also uh, fills the blood with new oxygen. Very much like uh, love is what makes the world turn in a certain way, even though in some cases it's money, but it's supposed to be love from a Christian perspective. And it is the heart of Jesus, it is his love that kind of gives our heart, our capacity to love new oxygen. So if we have difficulty to loving each other, then we should go to Jesus and ask uh, just like we would go to the heart, our, our kind of oxygen-deprived blood would go to the heart and, and be fueled again. That is kind of how it works in, 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 in uh, our faith as well. If we have difficulty loving and acting out of love, we should go to Jesus and ask him, ask him to fill us with his love. And that just and then pump that love into the world. So in a way, it's not a not a bad metaphor at all. It's just that I wish that they would kind of modernize the imagery surrounding this feast a little bit. But uh, maybe that just takes a little bit more time, especially now that uh, church in the Western world is predominantly filled with older people that are still familiar with that iconography of that generation. Maybe it just takes a generation for this to renew itself. 
But I don't think that the, the symbol, symbolism of the heart is broken at all. If you look at social media, it's filled with hearts, you know. The emojis, <laughs> so, so many hearts there. So, yeah, I think uh, it, it should be updated, but maybe we should make a, a, a new statue of Jesus just sending heart emojis to his followers. Who knows? Maybe that was sac- sacrilegious. <laughs> when did you become an expert in thermonuclear astrophysics? Last night. The packet. The extraction theory papers. Am I the only one who did the reading? Okay, I'm sitting here in the main living room of my virtual house in Animal Crossing, and I have a typewriter, and I can type on it, and it makes these little clicky sounds. I love it so much. And, you know, this is how I learned how to type, on a real typewriter. And it made these sounds, like the clickety-clickety-click, and then you had to move to the next line with this lever on the right side, and you would give it a swing, and then it would just do this ping. And... I still, and I love that my mom, uh, when I, I think I was 10, maybe, that she sent me to this uh, typing course. Uh, it was a lot of hard work, but I still can type uh, at a, an incredible speed. <laughs> I think it's because that is, you know, it's, it's muscle memory. Typing is muscle memory. I, um, that is why I always enjoy reading books. Uh, it always... Like, if there was a eternal life, I'd probably spend at least a few centuries of that eternal life just writing books and writing stories. And it's kind of unfortunate that I don't have time to write, uh, write stories because as a child, one of my ambitions, one of the many things that I would want to become uh, once I was old, was to become a children's book writer. I was a huge fan of Roald Dahl and... Um, I was always writing these short stories for the local school paper. Um, most of them were kind of science fiction stories or fairy tale stories. And I always imagined myself later to, you know, do at least uh, that at, as a job on the side. So when I read Harry Potter, for instance, I was like, oh, if I would read that, if that book, if those books had come out when I was a child... That would have been my favorite series, and I would be all over, you know, just writing similar stories. Or right now, reading Artemis Fowl, and I'm thinking, this is just so genius. I wish I'd come up with that idea of writing uh, a, a children's book where the main, the main character is a criminal mastermind. Forget about the movie. Just go read the books. So I've uh, recently... Uh, start reading Artemis Fowl. It is a very quick read. The books are definitely for a younger audience. Uh, I guess yeah, twelve and and older. Um, and so I'm 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 easily breezing through those books um, uh, quite fast. Uh, then after I've done uh, I've uh, I'm done with reading uh, Artemis Fowl. I want to move over to another book that I've uh, received um, from uh, Samuel Varg uh, from Sweden, who sent me this book as a birthday present. Not on my birthday, but on his birthday. you you got to love it. And um, the book is by one of my favorite fantasy writers. I'm trying to look it up, but of course it's not in my... uh, 
I'm, I'm browsing through my Kindle library, but it's not even a Kindle library because he gifted me the audiobook. And it is the first book of the uh, Mistborn series. Uh, and I've heard great things about it. Uh, it's written by Anderson. Uh, let me look that up. Mistborn. Maybe I can find uh, a Wikipedia entry with some plot points for you. So Mistborn is a series of epic fantasy novels written by American author Brandon Sanderson, published by Tor Books. Um, and the first book is called The Final Empire, and I've got that one in audiobook version. And I think it is like 24 hours long, or it's a huge book, 600 plus pages. Um, what what uh, first made me aware of the existence of Brandon Sanderson is that he was the author who finished the Wheel of Time book series when the original author passed away. Um, so he picked it up. He was a huge fan. And I, again, this is just based on what I've heard because I haven't finished the Wheel of Time series yet. Um, he did a tremendous job. And this is one of the most prolific fantasy writers that I've ever seen. He's also very active on YouTube. And I'm having a blast watching his signing session. So what he does is, uh, just look him up. Uh, so his name is Brandon Sanderson. Um, he goes in, I guess, what is his attic? Or, it, or maybe it's his garage. And he sits down at a table and signs, personally signs copies of his books. And then uh, while he does that, and he's signing hundreds and hundreds, for, for, for like two or three hours, he's just chatting with the audience and answering questions. And this guy has an, an encyclopedial knowledge, so just ask him anything, and he'll just talk about his experiences in writing this or that book, or he'll go in detail about certain characters. It's incredible uh, what, he, what he's been able to... Uh, to pull off and a very sympathetic guy um so as soon as i start reading miss born i'll let you know what i thought of it but uh i'm kind of enjoying this this new phase in my life where i'm plowing my way through you know hundreds and hundreds of, of pages of, of of fantasy novels i hope i won't get burned out on it but so far so good i'm i'm really enjoying the experience we are on the cutting edge of technology Wow. Well, what does that mean? Let's plug it in. It's going to say, hey, I see you plugged in a new device. And it's going to load in the appropriate drivers. You'll notice that this scanner built... Whoa. Well, all your technology stuff it just ends in disaster. But there is one more thing. There's absolutely one more thing that we need to talk about. And, of course, it's WWDC in... Well, the virtual world. It is the annual Apple Developers Conference, which I've always followed because of the uh, software announcements and the hints that Apple would give in terms of where uh, they see their particular technology uh, develop. And there is usually not uh, new hardware that is presented, which of course is what we love the most when Apple comes with a new phone or a new iPad or, you know, in the future, new AR glasses. But these developer conferences are still very interesting to see where this market leader, because Apple is definitely leading the way in, in, in many aspects, a lot, it has a lot of imitators, uh, where Apple is taking the industry. And 
because of COVID-19, they did not do a real developers conference, but they did a virtual one. And for a couple of days, they've streamed videos, uh, most of which were very well produced. And they, for the first time, they showed off their new saucer-shaped headquarters. And, uh, and that was pretty cool. They used the, the spaces very much, like every part of the of the presentation was taking place in another part of the campus. And uh, the only thing that was a little bit uh, disappointing, I thought, was how barren everything looks uh, ar surrounding the campus. So they have planted a lot of uh, trees and plants, uh, but I guess it's just very dry where, where this campus is located in is it Palo Alto. Um, and so everything looked very... I don't know, barren and uh, like, oh, I hope they're never, they never get a fire inside the saucer because that would be pretty difficult to, uh, well, to, to repair if uh, everything goes up in flames. But anyway, uh, it was interesting, a, a little bit weird, a, bit, a little bit surreal. Uh, you see all these familiar characters that we know from their onstage performance and they're very good onstage. Apple is extremely good. I think it's... the maybe one of the companies that knows how to do this best. And it's all thanks to, to Steve Jobs, who had a knack for, you know, getting the, the audience wild about even the slightest things. Um, I don't think that Tim Cook has the same charism, but he does hand it over to a number of other people uh, that I think were very good at presenting the latest development. So here are a few of my notes, and I'm just sharing kind of the main... Uh, my, my, my main impressions from the first day of WWDC. First of all, they showed us a new version of iOS. <clears throat> iOS is, of course, the operating system of, of the iPhone. And then it had a couple of spin-offs. Uh, so now they've got iPad OS, they've got TV OS, iOS TV, Watch OS, iOS, or Watch OS, I think. And then you've got, of course, Mac OS, which is the operating system for, for Mac. And there are a few interesting developments uh, here for the phone they just continue to um, make the overall experience consistent with what they've done on the ipad um, and they've created something that i think is very handy it's an app library so normally uh, if you have a phone and it doesn't matter if you've got an android phone or an iphone uh, you have a ton of screens with icons and uh, i only use the first two screens because all my important apps are on the first few two screens, and I never really look at the other screens. Well, Apple knows this problem, and they also know that mm, the reason that you have, you know, a lot of the apps in the in the uh, the you know the the screens in the back of the of the phone in a certain way is because, well, you've launched them a couple of times, but the, you don't use them on a daily basis, so you're probably not going to look at all those pages unless they find a new way to group the, the, the icons. And so it has an automatic cataloging of these apps and they present the apps grouped together in a, in a logical way and um, very visual. I, I just loved it. I was like, wow, this is so much better than what Android is doing with their uh, app uh, library where the, Andro the Android operating system is a little bit different. It has also screens on which you can place icons, but these icons are from an a layer underneath the the screens of your phone and that is just this huge library of apps on in alphabetical order and you can say well hey i want this app to show up on one of my screens on the phone and these i want to have them on my device but i don't need to access them uh, very often that, that so 
on my Android phone, I have this long, long list of apps, some of which are very important, and I use them a lot, and others I just want to have them around just in case, but I may launch them just once every year. So maybe Android can uh, emulate this idea. I liked it. I liked it very much. Then um, the other innovation for iOS 14 is the integration of widgets, um, which Apple has had for a while. They kind of took that from the Android operating system. Um, and for the first time, you can do something that is slightly similar to uh, what Android users have been able to do for a long time, and that is to implement these widgets, to integrate the widgets in the app screens. So instead of just having these same looking pages uh, with just, you know, square icons, you can now add uh, widgets that are rectangular or bigger or smaller. Every app can have multiple versions of the widgets. Um, and it, it makes for a very nice looking uh, presentation. And also very handy because you don't want to swipe left and then go through this long list of widgets that also, at least on my iPhone, take a long time to load its contents. You want to have them available uh, on the first few screens that you always use. So I thought that they did a good job. It did remind me, however, a lot. And correct me if I'm wrong, but remember Microsoft tiles? That they had phones windows phones and what set these phones apart is that the screens of those phones were covered in tiles microsoft thought that this was going to be all over the place they even tried to at one point to make windows completely tile based and that proved to be a big failure and not loved at all so they kind of minimized that in subsequent releases of the microsoft opera operating system but now apple is i think doing what microsoft intended to do but they do it i think much better that is what apple does not always very original but they take good ideas from other uh um, from other platforms and then they they think about it a little bit longer and and well they, they'd make it work. So I was impressed by that. And like, hmm, wow, okay. That is, I think a lot of Apple phone, iPhone users are going to like this a lot. Then they also upgraded the iPad OS and introduced, ta-da, the sidebar. I was like, okay, so you mean that the iPad is now working like a computer? <laughs> they presented it as if it's this huge innovation I'm thinking, okay, so you're just using computer uh, a computer interface now for your iPad. It totally makes sense, but they could have done this years ago. <sighs> so anyway, I'm glad it's there. I still have an iPhone or an iPad. Unfortunately, it, it does not update anymore. It's too old. So, But if I ever go for another tablet, the only tablet that is high on my list is the big iPad. It is very expensive. It's more than a thousand bucks. But that is the that is the one selling point of Apple is that everything works. Um, Android tablets usually are are quite nice too, but they only have an upgrade cycle of about two years, and then your device is already outdated. For Apple, it's usually five years. So yeah, I'm still really. Excited about the iPad. I use it every day. It is maybe the device that I use the most of all my mobile devices. Um, I only use my, my regular desk computer more than, than my iPad. So it's really, I think, uh, 
had a had a good return on on investment for me. So what else was interesting? Um, I loved what they did with the AirPods. I will never buy AirPods because they're super expensive. Um, I just have Chinese uh, uh, Bluetooth uh, pods, which cost me literally less than 12 bucks. And they're wonderful. And I use them all the time. But what they did with the AirPods uh, was uh, auto-switching. So the uh, because it's all integrated, the... The Apple knows if you're holding a phone in your hand or an iPad and it will just seamlessly switch the AirPods to the device that you're using at the time, whether it's a laptop or a phone or, or, or a tablet. Um, whereas with my head, uh, with my AirPods, I have to turn off the Bluetooth on one device, turn it on on the other device, pair it. It will auto pair, but still, it's a bit of a hassle. It's not as seamless. So that, that is very cool. But then you pay a price for those AirPods. And spatial audio. That was very interesting. So they, they've created spatial surround sound type audio processing with these AirBuds. And I think, I'm thinking this is in preparation for their AR glasses. That is such an AR type of thing. It's not very useful. For, they, they tried to present it as if this would, would be uber cool for 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 um, video conferencing, but I'm thinking uh, that's that's not enough of a reason. So I'm thinking this is already pointing towards the next big thing that Apple is going to present, and that is going to be um, augmented reality. And you definitely need spatial audio for that. So mind my words, this is all in preparation for the big AR release uh, or our announcement later this year. And then they finally showed us uh, some improvements for the Mac operating system, now called Big Sur, which, I don't know, they, they keep being very America-centric in their names. It's all, you know, probably nature parks in the U.S., but if you're not from the U.S., I'm like, what the heck is Big Sur? Uh, anyway, um, what I... They they now have converged the operating system style from the iOS and then and then made the macOS look much more like a the iPad operating system and i don't think it's an improvement at all i really hate the colors and the look of the um iOS operating system never liked it from the from the start and now my computer is going to look like that Ew, no, no thank you. They made the icons a little bit more like the old icons on the phone. So they gave it more depth. So it's kind of, uh, in my opinion, like going back. They, 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 at one point with Johnny Ives being in control of the look of the operating system, everything had to be super flat and boring. Now they're bringing 3D back to the icons, but they say, well, that's because the computers are so powerful, so it's only going to be on macOS. I think the next step is going to be that they're going to implement that on, on iOS as well. Because people are, these icons look nicer. People just want to have nice icons. Anyway. But uh, I'm not looking forward to my Mac looking like a big iPad because it's just not nice. I don't like it. Anyway. And then the, the biggest reveal was right at the end of this very long video. It's more than an hour and a half long. And it is the announcement that Apple would be switching in the upcoming years to their own chips. No longer will they use Intel, but they're going to transition just like they did with from PowerPC to uh, Intel chips. They're going to transition everyone 
to these proprietary chips that are based on the chips that they already developed for iPad. And I think that's a, probably a good thing because these chips are incredibly powerful. So um, they're going to, I think, uh, uh, outpace Intel very, very quickly. The only downside, of course, is that uh, all developers will need to make their apps work with these new chips. So, yeah, that may be a problem for some of them. Hey, it is time for me to uh, pour myself a cup of coffee and wrap up this show. Thank you so much for joining me today. And if you want to hear more of me, then maybe you want to consider becoming a patron because then you get another one of these shows every week called Father Roderick to the Max. And, uh, well, in this week's Father Roderick to the Max, I'll talk about everything that I couldn't get to in this show. So I'll give you my, uh, my favorite recipe for spaghetti aglio e olio. <laughs> we'll talk a little bit about a new Lord of the Rings game. Um, I'll talk a little bit about liturgy and about the role of the altar. We'll talk about body language and a very cool YouTube channel that I've recently uh, discovered. And maybe I'll talk a little bit more about Star Trek and about the Obi-Wan series in preparation for Disney+. Plus. All that and more on the show that I produce exclusively for my supporters in the Patreon community. Again, if you want to join them, it's as simple as, uh, or it's as little as $2.50 a month. I, don't, I hope that is not going to be an impediment for any of you. Um, and you get to, you know, join the club. So go over to patreon.com slash Father Roderick. Thank you in advance. Thanks for listening. I'll be back. Take care and God bless.